Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 12, A Lloyd Meets Girl Story. I'm going to take out Diane Court. Diane Court doesn't go out. She's a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess. We don't want to see you get hurt. I want to get hurt. So it's Lloyd, and um, uh, let's go out. Oh, thanks, but I'm busy. So you're, so you're monumentally busy? Well, not monumentally. Hi, Boyd Domish. I'm an athlete, so I rarely drink. Kickboxing, I heard of kickboxing, sport of the future. I can see by your face, no. My point is you can relax because your daughter will be safe with me for the next seven, eight hours, sir. Hi. Whoa. Maybe Diane Court really likes Lloyd. If you were Diane Court, would you honestly fall for Lloyd? Yeah. Yeah. What are your plans for the future? Spend as much time possible with Diane. No, really. I'm totally and completely serious. I'm not sure if I should say, you know. I just want to no, tell you that. No, we don't have to say. How do you know what I'm going to say? I don't know what you're going to say. I'm just going to tell you that I love you. you. I said it. I know. I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Lloyd, man, no baby's worth it, dude. All you gotta do is find a girl who looks just like her and then dump her, man. You guys know so much about women. How come you here at, like, a gas and sip on a Saturday night? No women anywhere. My choice, man. That's yeah, right, man. It's a conscious choice. I'm a guy. I have pride. No, you're not a guy. No, the world is full of guys. Be a man. John Cusack, Ioni Sky, Say Anything. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and welcome to the first of a few bi-weekly episodes as I crank out a few for the summer of 2013. After all, what else do you do when you have so much time on your hands, right? Anyway... I don't have a lot of preamble this time around, mainly because even though I'm releasing this episode two weeks after my last one, I'm actually recording it all of like a day or two after I posted it. So I haven't gotten any emails or feedback yet about the last episode, which was the Columbia House 13. Hopefully I'll have some for the next episode, which will be up sometime in mid to late July. Uh, I hope to have that one recorded before I go on vacation. So this time around, I'm covering a movie, which is something I've done before, of course. Uh, I had thought of doing a commentary track because that would be an easy thing to put together. In fact, let me give you a little peek behind the curtain. I actually recorded one, but it wasn't the greatest. I thought about what I was going to put in the first part of the episode, and because uh, I, wa- I basically I recorded the commentary, and I'm like, oh, I'll go back and record like the first part of the thing, and. I realize that as much as I love the movie I'm going to be talking about today, a straight-up episode complete with critique and what have you would be a much better approach. Plus, while I plan on doing commentaries uh, for various things, I have a goal of doing commentaries for things that really don't need commentaries, and this isn't one of them. Plus, the actual commentary on the DVD is much better than what I did, which was basically talk for 90 minutes about how much I love this movie. 
which is kind of what I'm going to do here, but yeah. Anyway, what's the movie? Well, if the mu- if the uh, trailer in the opening didn't tip you off, it's the 1989 Cameron Crowe directed John Cusack starring Say Anything. And over the course of this episode, I'll be talking a little bit about the movie's background. I'll give a brief synopsis, provide my Desert Island all-time top five moments from the movie, going over two analyses of the movie. And I'll give you a brief tour of the soundtrack. Uh, I'm also going to, and I'm going to begin it after this trailer, so uh, stick around. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US 1? Um, no, I'm gonna start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that, supposedly, is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CD signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Mm, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CD signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although, the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Say Anything was directed by Cameron Crowe and stars John Cusack, Ioni Skye, and John Mahoney. It's Crowe's directorial debut, although not his first foray into film. That was Fast Times Ridgemont High, for which he wrote the screenplay. 
because it was based on his book of the same name. That particular movie, which was directed by Amy Heckerling, is a seminal movie for the teen genre for a few reasons. First, there's Sean Penn's performance as the surfer stoner guy, Jeff Spicoli. Second, Phoebe Cates has a scene where she ensures that you will never listen to the cars moving in stereo the same way again. And third, it's a really well-written, down-to-earth, realistic film about high school. Crow had been a reporter for Rolling Stone at a young age, and at one point went undercover in a Southern California high school, which is what provided the background for his book. The book, which is actually out of print, and it's pretty impossible to obtain a copy on the cheap, trust me, I've tried, was a hit. The movie was optioned, obviously, and Heckerling directed it. She would go on to direct several movies, among them, uh, I believe she directed European Vacation, and she directed the Look Who's Talking movies, but she'd also wind up directing another great teen movie, 1995's Clueless, which put Alicia Silverstone in the stratosphere, and is probably the only way I will ever like anything written by Jane Austen, ever. Crow, after Fast Times, went on to write a movie called The Wildlife, which starred Eric Stoltz and Chris Penn, and is hard to come by as far as VHS, DVD, or what have you, because music rights have kept it from having a really widespread home video release after its initial release on VHS back in the mid-80s. It used to show up on WPIX uh, quite a lot when I was a kid, but I was too young to watch it. And really, uh, really, even if I, if I had watched it, I don't think I really would have gotten it. Uh, I believe it is available on YouTube. And uh, if I get the chance, I may go ahead, watch it, and do a, a blog entry about it for curiosity's sake. Especially since I've seen all of Crow's films uh, but from Fast Times, starting Fast Times, and up until about up until Almost Famous, um, and I've seen Elizabeth Town, but not Vanilla Sky, and I still have to watch his documentary on Pearl Jam, uh, and I have not seen We Bought a Zoo. Anyway, this his present career is is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Say Anything, which was actually developed by James L. Brooks, um, who has been a powerhouse producer for, for decades. I believe he was instrumental in the Mary Tyler Moore show. I know him as being uh, an early champion and one of the executive producers of The Simpsons. But his shows and movies include Terms of Endearment, As Good As It Gets, and what have you. He came up, apparently, he came up with the idea for a movie about a father going to jail and what it would do to his daughter after he saw a father and a daughter you know, hanging out in a park. It was kind of you know, something dawned on him that this would be a good idea for a story. Uh, originally, Lawrence Kasdan, of Big Chill fame, was tapped to direct, but Crow got the job. I read somewhere, and I can't remember where I read it, uh, that Crow actually wrote the story of Say Anything as a short story before turning it into a screenplay. Not as a published short story, but as writing it kind of like in prose before we got to the got to the actual screenplay aspect of it uh, because Crow cut his teeth as a prose writer. He was a journalist for years and years. So for all I know, that's, a, that's a, an apocryphal story, but that would be pretty cool if it was true. Crow, uh, like I've kind of mentioned, would go on to direct a few other movies, notably Jerry Maguire, which is the first movie my wife and I ever saw in the theater together when we started dating. And Almost Famous, a brilliant, 
autobiographical movie about his time when he first started out writing for Rolling Stone and went on tour with with several bands uh, from the from the mid seventies. He won a Best Screenplay Oscar for that. And I'm not no I'm I'm not skipping over singles. Uh, that is another movie that he directed in 1992-93, and that'll actually be the subject of a future episode. As for Say Anything and its stars, there were several people who were considered or even auditioned for the part of the male lead, Lloyd Dobler, including Kirk Cameron, Robert Downey Jr., and Christian Slater. But at some point in the casting, Crow decided he wanted John Cusack in the role, and he lobbied to get him. Cusack had been a teen movie staple up until about 87, but hadn't done a teen comedy since Hot Pursuit, instead taking roles in movies like Eight Men Out and Fat Man and Little Boy. His teen movie resume, though, is really impressive. He's in Sixteen Candles, Better Off Dead, The Sure Thing, One Crazy Summer, all of which are fun films to watch. Ione Sky, on the other hand, doesn't have much of a resume before Say Anything. Her most notable role seems to be in a movie called Stranded and in the River Phoenix comedy A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon. She played Diane Court, the class valedictorian, who falls for Lloyd just as her father, Jim, gets busted on tax fraud. Jim's played by John Mahoney, the raspy-voiced actor best known for playing Fraser Crane's father on Fraser through much of the 90s and the early 2000s. Rounding out our caster, Joan Cusack, in an uncredited supporting role as Lloyd's sister Constance, and the incomparable Lily Taylor, who plays Lloyd's best friend Corey, a role that, like Ione Skye's Diane Court, she'll definitely be forever associated with. The movie came out on April 14, 1989. It wound up grossing $20.7 million domestically. Its budget was $16 million, so it's a decent profit. It opened second for that weekend behind some caper movie called Disorganized Crime, and it wound up being the 52nd highest grossing film of the year, making more than The Fabulous Baker Boys in the latest installment of Friday the 13th, which was Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. But it made less than A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, and Weekend at Bernie's. Incidentally, one of the best teams films from 1989, Heathers, only pulled in $1.1 million at the box office and finished in 167th place for the year. The highest grossing movie of 1989, by the way, at $251.1 million, as if you needed me to tell you, it was Batman. But, say anything's a moderate success, enough for Crow to go on for, to a successful directorial career, and it even gave Cusack what has to be one of his defining roles. It's also a role that he's not trying to live down, because if you listen to the commentary track in the DVD release from back in the early 2000s, he seems to really appreciate having had the chance to play Lloyd. The commentary, by the way, it's a little tough to get through because it can be self-serving at times. Crow, Cusack, and Sky talk for about 20 minutes about making the movie before the movie even starts. While it's really cool to hear three people reminisce about how much they liked making something and how much they appreciate the love that this movie gets, you really have to be a big fan to want to sit through all of this. Fortunately, I am. I have sat through it, and I've been a big fan of this movie for nearly 20 years. My first encounter with Say Anything uh, would not have happened if it wasn't for an earlier Cusack film, Better Off Dead, which is the movie that Cusack's been trying to live down since 1985. I won't go into too much about that movie, because I actually plan on doing a Savage Steve Holland episode at some point in the future, uh, and even have a guest lined up for that, and once we get our schedule straightened out, we'll, we'll take care of it. 
Uh, but I will say that catching Better Off Dead completely at random on one afternoon on WPAX led me to wanting to rent John Cusack's other movies. And right around that time, the Fox Network showed Say Anything on a random weeknight. It was during the summer as well. I want to say it was the summer of 91 or 92. I don't think I remember having much of a reaction to the movie at first either, just that I thought it was pretty good and I wanted to see it again. So I ended up renting it a few times from Video Empire, and then I did what quite a number of people in my generation did when their parents had a VCR in the den and the VCR in the basement, which was, well, I hooked the two together and copied it because, you know, I'm a criminal. Anyway, Say Anything became frequent viewing, uh, especially during my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And I remember that this had to do with girls. Now, I have established by now that I'm a dork, and uh, I was a mega dork in high school. Uh, My love life, as it were was comprised of several crushes on girls who barely gave me the time of day. I spent many a Friday night at home watching movies, like movies like this. And it wasn't until someone sometime in senior year that I discovered that girls, well, like, they liked certain movies and Say Anything was one of them. This wasn't the movie that made me discover that, by the way. Uh, the movie that made me discover that was uh, With Honors, the Patrick Dempsey, Brendan Fraser, Joe Pesci movie. Um... That is a story for another day, to be honest with you. Although I will say that Moira Kelly... Oh, Moira Kelly. Um, Anyway, I remember two instances where either mentioning or viewing this movie seemed to get a reaction out of a couple of girls I knew. One was at a New Year's Eve party during my senior year of high school. I don't remember how the film came up in conversation, but I did. I remember my friend Kathy, who was barely talking to me at the time, turned to me and said, Oh, I love that movie! And... I think for the first time in, like, two months, we had, like, a pleasant conversation. Uh, It's a long story from what I remember. The other moment was when I was a freshman in college, and a friend of mine, who happened to be a girl, and I, we watched it in my dorm room, and it ended with her crying. Now, it shouldn't be any shock that I made a girl cry. I'm such a dipshit that I've been known to do that. But this was like, I love this movie, Tears, and, and, and this film kind of became this thing between us for a year, which is what happens during your freshman year of college, to be completely honest. I mean, for her, she's actually listening to that, and if she is, hi, how are you? After that, though, uh, and after years of different girls and places and what have you, the movie has been a favorite, and it's been a favorite, my favorite movie, actually, right behind The Breakfast Club. So much so, I actually have a framed copy of the film's poster hanging on the wall of, of a spare bedroom slash office in my house. Uh, so what I'd like to do is talk about it, talk about the plot, talk about what I love about the movie, and uh, what's so great about it. You know, really, really, really dig into to why why this is this is my favorite movie or one of my favorite movies. So we'll do that after this. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? 
Captain's going to use the caption. Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Destruction sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found Mr. Spock. I'm talking to Mr. Spock. Do you understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire, Mr. Scott. Join Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the two true freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek the Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. back if you hear random noises in the background it looks like it is going to open up and i hope that this does not affect my power but there's a lot of thunder going on right now i probably should be recording a thunderstorm but anyway say anything opens in seattle or at least the seattle suburbs with Corey saying something about what a teacher wrote in her yearbook the type of thing that as a teacher i can actually appreciate being and especially as a yearbook advisor. Then Lloyd gets things going by telling her and their friend DC that he wants to take Diane Cord out again. Corey tells him that they never had a first date, and they go back and forth about whether or not him sitting with her at a mall food court was a date, a scam, whatever. The girls say that Diane Court, a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess, doesn't go out with guys like Lloyd, and that he'll probably get hurt. But I want to get hurt, Lloyd insists. Across town, Diane is practicing her graduation speech with her father as they drive to graduation. She has some line about how she's glimpsed the future and she can only say, Go back. 
which Jim and only Jim finds hilarious. At the graduation ceremony, Corey's ex-boyfriend Joe gives the class a crazy rendition of the greatest love of all, hitting the line about his dignity ever so ironically. And Diane gives her speech with that big line bombing, but also revealing that she's scared of the future. Diane gets a car for graduation. Lloyd photobombs a picture of her gesturing to her new car. Diane then gets a ring from her father because he insists not only is he her father, but he's her friend. And Lloyd returns home to the apartment he shares with his sister and his nephew. Constance, his sister, couldn't come to the graduation because Jake, his nephew, was sick. But Lloyd isn't bothered. She then gives him a shift for palling around with his nephew, yelling, Why can't you be his uncle and not his playmate? To which he replies, Be in a good mood. How hard is it just to be in a good mood? And they have a quick sibling spat and eventually smooth things over. Lloyd then psychs himself up and calls Diane. She's not at home. But he leaves a message with Jim, and when Diane calls him back, a sequence that includes a hilarious scene where Constance runs into the other room and grabs the phone so she can listen in, which is so what a sister would do. He rambles through asking her out. She does her best to blow him off, but eventually she says she'll go to Valer's graduation party. Diane has also gotten some great news that day. Uh, right after Lloyd calls, Jim gets another phone call, and he finds out that she has won a fellowship to study in England for a year. Jim is so excited that he runs over to the nursing home that he manages and tells her about it. He gives her this whole speech about how she's special and she's going to be celebrated on two continents. He's very, very, very proud of his daughter. That night, Lloyd picks her up, and she looks stunning. They go to what was one of the, has to be one of the most epic parties ever held, and which I'll talk about in more detail later. Just know that Lloyd has chosen to be Keymaster. He talks to his guidance counselor, a smoking hot BB New Earth, about his plans for the future or lack thereof. Diane meets just about everyone she ignored throughout high school because she was too busy studying. Oh, and there's the Corey and Joe saga. Joe broke Corey's heart. She tried to kill herself, and then she wrote 63 songs about Joe, and she's sitting in the living room playing them all at the party. After the party's over, well, after Lloyd and Diane have to drive a drunk guy home and spend three hours trying to find this drunk guy's house, he takes her home, and he winds up getting, well, a second date. This one is dinner at her house, and he's already headed for trouble because, well, Tim can't understand how a guy like that could possibly have a shot at his daughter. At dinner which is also attended by friends and colleagues of Jim's. The father and daughter share a story about why she hates to fly, and then Jim asks Lloyd what he wants to do with his life. He replies that he doesn't want to buy anything, sell anything, or process anything for your career. He doesn't want to buy anything sold or processed or sell anything bought or processed or repair anything sold, bought, or processed, or something to that extent. And he mentions that he's going to be teaching kickboxing, sport of the future. Uh, before anybody could really answer, and everybody at the party kind of looks like, what the hell is this guy talking about? The doorbell rings. It's two special agents with the IRS who inform Jim that he's under investigation for tax fraud. At this point, we have our entire plots established. Diane and Lloyd don't really start dating at first because she's you know, upset about the thing with her dad, and she's wondering if that would get in the way, so they decide to be friends, but potential, as he puts it. One thing does eventually lead to another, and they not only start dating, but um, they spend the night together in the back of his car, In Your Eyes by P Peter Gabriel, playing on the radio as they do it. 
This creates serious tension between her and Jim, who is also feeling the pressure of the IRS investigation, and eventually he comes out and says that he wants her to break up with him. In fact, he gives her a pen, and he tells her to give it to Lloyd so he can write to her in England. Although she's reluctant to do it, Diane does wind up breaking up with Lloyd, and doesn't, does give him the pen. He takes it incredibly hard, moping around the house and driving around town. He even attempts to hang out with more guys, like Joe and his friends, but that winds up being a mistake. Jim's problems, meanwhile, continue. His credit card is declined when he tries to buy Diane some luggage, and he winds up sitting home alone one day in the bathtub with a worried look on his face, knowing that this really is the end, that he really has been caught and bad things are about to happen. Diane does her best to weather the breakup, especially since Lloyd calls eight times, and one night he stands near her house and plays In Your Eyes from a boombox, which she can hear in the distance. Then she talks to the IRS, who tell her that they believe her father has spent years skimming off the top of the profits for the home and keeps the money in a large pool of cash. She doesn't believe it at first, but when she's home alone one day, she snoops around the house and finds the cash. She then confronts her father and moves out of the house and goes to see Lloyd. In the end, Jim is incarcerated and Lloyd goes to see him at prison, telling Jim that Diane came up, came with him, but she wouldn't get out of the car. Jim asks him if he's going to England with Diane, and Lloyd says, well, he wasn't going to go at first. But now he is, and this sets Jim off. He yells at Lloyd, who takes it in stride and then hands Jim a letter from his daughter. Before visiting hours are over, Diane strolls through the prison and hugs her father, giving him a pen and telling him to write her. The film ends with Lloyd leaving home, and then Lloyd and Diane sitting on a plane, headed to England, waiting for the no-smoking sign to ding. I, of course, cannot say enough about this film. It's very well written, and incredibly well acted, and even though I have seen it upwards of 30 or 40 times, I still love it every time I watch it. And it seems to have a pretty positive reputation overall, and so instead of going through everything and just gushing... I thought I'd pull a Rob Gordon, another Cusack character, and give you my top five moments from the movie. Number five is the film's very last scene. Here we have Diane and Lloyd on a plane headed to England. It was established earlier in the film that she's very scared of flying, so Lloyd, in his rambling sort of way, keeps her occupied as the plane takes off and the flight begins. Basically, he insists that everything bad on an airplane happens in the first five minutes of the flight, so when the captain turns off the new smoking sign... And isn't that a blast from the past, the possibility of smoking on an airplane, right? Things will be fine. So basically, they spend a few minutes waiting for the ding. The reason I love the scene is not just because it ends the movie on a chuckle, but because it has one of my favorite lines of all time. At one point, Diane turns to Lloyd and says, Nobody thinks this is going to work, do they? And he replies, You just described every great success story. Then they kiss, and they begin watching the sign again. And it's a moment that is very Elaine Robinson and Ben Braddock. Uh, It's the uncertainty, the acknowledgement of the uncertainty that's associated with the risk that these two are really taking. And that's really what makes the scene what it is and puts a nice point on the end of the film. They're two kids right out of high school at this point, so we don't really know if they're going to live happily ever after or what. I mean... I've seen more American graffiti. I know what happens to Laurie and Steve after he decides to stay behind. Is this what happens to Lloyd and Diane? Do they become miserable together later on? Does it all work out? I mean, 
we know that he did something for her, and we know that she's definitely changed the result as a result of falling in love with him. But do we truly know that's going to last? The fact that Crow obviously trusts his audience to know that there's well reality here, and he knows they won't be upset by unanswered questions is just as important as their happy ending, and I've always liked that. Number four is Diane finding out the truth about what her father did and then confronting Jim. The scene after the famous jukebox scene is incredibly important to the plot because it's essentially the climax of the film. Diane goes to see the IRS agent about her dad and the agent, who's played by Philip Baker Hall, one of those hey, it's that guy character actors, by the way, tells her all about what they have discovered. He then tells her to look around the house and see if she can figure out what they have. At first, she's incredulous because she thinks he's trying to get her to say something. But Diane honestly has no idea what Jim has been keeping from her. When she gets home, she picks up a magazine and puts it on a table, and then she actually just begins to look around a little bit, and then starts to rifle through her dad's things. And then she starts to rifle through his papers, and finally, in a little chest thing he's got, little box that has a lock on it she 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 sees it and she picks the lock and she finds just stacks upon stacks upon stacks of $100 bills then she drives to the nursing home and asking after asking her father to tell her the truth and he flat out lies to her she says she found the money and lay, like lays into him and then she leaves and then the next scene is her uh, getting back together with Lloyd and if there's one scene in this movie where Ione's guy is actually really really great it's this one Diane's not stupid and the IRS agent knows that so he levels with her and you get the feeling that she doesn't go into the home in order to find out the truth it's not like she rushes home and is like I'm going to find the truth she just happens to be there and she gets there and she you know puts the magazine down and all of a sudden she's like you know, he's in her head now. And that's why she begins rifling through this stuff. At one point, she actually even says, they made me doubt you. Before she sees this, that little kind of, it looks almost like a little pagoda or something. I don't know. It's like a, it's a box. It's like a keepsake box. It almost looks like a big, big jewelry box. And her dad kept stuff in it. In fact, it's where he had hidden the ring that he bought for the graduation toward the beginning of the movie. It's kind of one of those, like, pay attention to this, it'll be important later type of moments. Because, in fact, she actually sees the ring on her finger, and that's one of the parts of the equation that kind of adds things up. And the moment she picks the lock, and she sees the cash, you actually see Diane's stomach flip, and her heart just plummet. I mean, the confrontation with her father that comes later, too, is really well done. She's angry, but she does her best to stay calm until he lies to her, and eventually she just becomes enraged, and even that just builds. So it's not like she goes completely off, or it's not like she has sort of this no moment. Um, it, it She just looks at the cash, and she's just shaking her head and, and, and crying, and then when she goes to see her father, she's she looks like she has been crying, but she he knows she's upset, and yeah, she asks him, she's, and and he's like, no. And then she said, I found the money. He's like, that money's not for them. It's for you, so you don't have to worry when you get back from England. And then she just, she's like, you stole from them. You lied to me. It's it's a it's a build. It's a build to a to a moment in a way that that um that you can tell she. There's one point where she's just 
she's just the, she's letting it all out and 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 I I think uh, Ioni Sky does a great great job. It's also well written and it's well composed uh, because as you're watching the scene, you notice there's if there's a score, it's very very subtle. Too many movies these days are overscored. Uh, it happens in horror movies, for instance. But too many movies are overscored. There's a ton of musical cues that seem to tell you what to feel and when to feel it. Crow just lets a lot of the natural sound of the scene speak for itself. And in all honesty, between the time she leaves the IRS office and the time she confronts her dad, there's actually only one line. They made me doubt you. And that's it. He uses silence to great effect in great drama. And I really, really like that. Coming in at number three is the dinner scene from Lloyd and Diane's second date, specifically Lloyd's it's pre- a pretty famous monologue. I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So uh, my father's in the Army. He wants me to join, but... I can't work for that corporation. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing. Uh, this is one of the scenes in the movie, one of the lo- set of lines, that if you love this movie, you can repeat verbatim. It shows Lloyd's quirkiness and his nervousness. In fact, at one point, Corey says that the family audition date is the kiss of death for Lloyd because he is the talking thing. <laughs> and it shows how different he is from Diane. Diane's driven. She knows what she wants to do with her life, or at least the next year or two, anyway. Lloyd's listless. He's not a loser. He's not a burnout. He's not a thug. He's not a delinquent. He's just simply someone who doesn't really know what to do with his life. So he's kind of a proto-slacker. I mean, he'd be really right at home in 91 or 92, even if he is a bit out out of place in the go-go 80s of Jim and Diane Court. And this, to a degree, is endearing. It's a genuine moment, and it shows why it's possible that someone like Diane Court would honestly fall for Lloyd. Plus, Cusack nails the scene. Uh, This is very much what makes him Lloyd Dobler in this movie. My number two scene is not necessarily a scene, but a whole sequence of the movie, and that's Valera's graduation party. Give me my firebird key! You must chill! You must chill! I have hidden your keys! Chill! I love you, man. All right, I love you too. Go to sleep. What for? I'm buzzed. <laughs> all right. I didn't go any to parties in high school. I went to all of one Raging Kegger graduation party um, when I was out of high school. It seems to be what anyone would want out of an epic party, though. In fact, I swear that Can't Hardly Wait is a movie... Uh, the movie that I really like, but it's a movie that is someone's effort to basically take this scene and stretch it over 90 minutes. And let's break it down, shall we? The party is hosted by, by Valer, who's played by Eric Stoltz, who is about 22 and throws this party every year. In fact, at one point, Valer dresses up as the high school's mascot and comes out right into the middle of the party screaming, Lakewood, Lakewood, have no fear. How about another year? And then he lets the party guests literally rip his costume to shreds. Uh, it's, by the way, a, one of a long line of Eric Stoltz appearances in movies that Crow was associated with. Uh, Stoltz plays a stoner in Fast Times. He's one of the leads in The Wildlife. He has a 
you have to look for it cameo in singles, and he's got a cameo in Jerry Maguire as well. I think he's. I don't think he was in the theatrical cut of Almost Famous. I. He might be in the extended cut. I have to actually look that up. And beyond that, I'm not sure. Uh, but now, moving on from just Valer, there's so much more. For instance, the conversation that Lloyd has with his guidance counselor, who's played by Baby Newworth. Up until this point, I'd only seen her as Lilith Crane on Cheers, but when I was first watching this, I was like, holy crap! She has that 80s Kirsty Alley vibe going, first of all. I, and I mean like Kirsty Alley in like summer school vibe. And then after she shows how OCD is, she is and actually has a sort of like mini counseling session with Lloyd asking him about his future. She drops her keys in the keymaster's bag and actually attends the party. My guidance counselor never looked like that or did anything like that. He had a belt buckle with his name on it. In fact, I'm pretty sure my guidance counselor, if my guidance counselor looked like B.B. Newworth does in this movie, I'd probably have gotten more counseling when I was in high school. Diane at the party through the course of the night, by the way, is great. Crow provides a character bit by having her and a few other girls bring their yearbooks to the party. It's a little odd. I think it's just a way for her to interact, and and it works for Diane on some level. Although, I'd have to go back. I really would have to go back and see if she actually leaves the house with her yearbook in her hand. I think it's actually an error that I could on IMDb. But it is a little odd. Like, I'm going to go to this raising graduation party and I'm going to bring my yearbook. Um, again, something in Can't Hardly Wait that's played to uh, great effect by Savile's own Melissa Joan Hart. Uh, I, but before I get to Diane at the party, I have to give John Mahoney some some love here for the look at his face when she leaves the party because it is pure what the fuck. Like, just this gaping look like who the hell is this guy? And even though the party is at the party, like, she's actually it's like she's actually attending high school. For real. For at least a night. Uh, there's this great conversation with this girl named Sheila, who's played by Kim Walker, who's best known for her role as Heather Chandler in Heather's. You were nothing before you met me. You were playing Barbies with Betty Finn. You were a bluebird. You're a brownie. You're a Girl Scout cookie. She does this whole thing about how if it weren't for Diane Court, whoa, she wouldn't have gotten into Cornell. And she uses air quotes. Uh, A friend of mine used to do a great impression of Sheila from this movie. Um, Anyway, Diane, throughout the party, goes around. She calls her dad to check in, uh, which actually shocks some of the other guests, one of whom is played by Lizanne Falk, who played Heather McNamara in Heather's. Uh, it's because her hair is cut shows so short in this film, by the way, that she's Lizanne's actually wearing a wig at the first scene of Heather's, the croquet scene at the beginning, by the way, because uh, they had to go back and do a reshoot. Uh, by the end of the night, though, D- Diane feels like this was a great decision, and she finally fit in for once. Lloyd has this great line as she's talking about that, and he says, you know, they used to know of her, and tonight, after tonight, they know her. And, and I, I, I like that line. I like, I like this idea of, of her, uh, of her character development starting with just kind of seeing another side of people. You never got the feeling that she was a queen bitch or anything. She just got the feeling that she was just kind of out of touch. 
and she was always kind of a little worried about that. Earlier in the at graduation, she worries that her people are going to think she's a press because her dad gave her a car and a ring and what have you. And you know, he was like, "Honey, in a million years, you could never be a press." And it's just like, you know, yeah, okay, dad. But Diane becomes a lot more human to them at the party, and I like how Crow does that without it being too dramatic. It's just kind of funny little bits throughout this night. Moving on, though. There's the Corey and Joe saga. I got some more songs to do. Jalice. 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 When he cries. When he cries. And have we not all had this friend? I mean, Corey had a huge breakup with Joe. He was going out with Mimi the entire time they were together. And Mimi's played by China Phillips, by the way. Uh, and, and this just wrecked her. She's, she's this rock and roll chick. She's, she's an artist. And Joe is... I mean, talk about a Pacific Northwest version of Spicoli. He's a doof. And he's so not on her emotional level. Plus, the fact that she sings all 63 songs about Joe in the living room with people actually hanging around brilliant. The lyrics at one point are ridiculous. You know, Joe lies when he cries. And people do laugh at that. And then the that'll never be me. That'll never be me. That'll never be never be me. No. That, don't you even think it. I mean, I all it's just, it's it's so, it, it's Corey. That, that's what you always associate with Corey. Um, I love how by the end of the night, too, she's decided to get over Joe. You know, they have this sort of talk in the back room, and he's like, you have sex with me? Are you someone I have sex with because me's going away to college, and I'm hanging around? And she's like, goodbye. And she comes out, and she's like, I'm single now. It sucks, and what have you. But if you look in the background of her bedroom, and the few times we see her bedroom in certain scenes, this I didn't notice this until I was watching it this time around. There's all this, like, Joe stuff. There's Corey Joe. There's pictures of them cut out and pasted on the walls. It's like it's almost like Lane Meyer's bedroom in in uh, Better Off Dead with pictures of Beth everywhere. It's it's brilliant because it's just subtle. It's in, in Better Off Dead. It's played for a gag, but in this you actually have to notice it. It's almost like a little. It's almost an Easter egg. And of course, the end of the party, we get Jeremy Piven doing the give me my fiber keys and 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 keys that go you must chill you must chill i have hidden your keys chill and lloyd and diane have to have to um drive this one guy home and, and the guy has like one of the worst new wave punk wannabe haircuts and he's completely wasted he has no idea where his house is he can't tell them and they finally they drive around Seattle for three hours listening to classic rock, and then he finally sees the house, and they pull over, and he's like, yeah, we should wait. I got some time, but they just, like, screech away. It is an epic party. It's it's one hell of a first date, and it, and it ends up being one of the more memorable scenes in the movie, but also, like, in this sort of 80s teenage cinema. I mean, there are very few parties in, in this kind of genre that, that equal this this sort of level and yet feels so organic at the same time. And finally, uh, there's my favorite scene in the movie. And this should come as no surprise to anyone, uh, because it's probably the most iconic scene of the film, and that's the boombox scene. 
to lead into this a little bit because it the scene comes after the breakup the breakup is brutal uh diane in the breakup she breaks up with him in his car and she's just really condescending the way she talks to him um she's like you know i think we should stop going out on date like she she can't do this she doesn't know how to do it she's doing it in a way that's almost like she's deliberately using proper english and things and he's like you're breaking up with me and and he's like, no, and she eventually gives him a pen. And she doesn't even want to give him the pen. You can tell she's like, oh shit. I just, she just turns around and gives him the pen. And there's a line um, after he's completely destroyed. And he says, I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen, which is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of breakups and mixtape, breakup poems and mixtapes rolled into one right there. And he decides that he's going to drive around. And he says he's going to hang out with some more guys. And, it goes horribly because Joe and Jeremy Piven's character and a couple other guys just tell him, you know, find another girl, nail her, and dump her, you know, because that's romantic. Then he goes to see Corey in D.C., and he tells him, well, he draws a line at seven on return phone calls, and Cor- he tells Corey, besides, you know, if she wants me, she can come to me, and he's all like, yeah, you bro. And she just, she's like, why are you doing this? He's like, because I'm a guy. And she just turns and she's like, there are plenty of guys in the world. Be a man. Don't be a guy. And and I, I love that. It's one of the best responses ever to that. And it's one of Corey's last scenes in the movie, and it's just such a great exclamation point on that particular character. He does leave that rambling phone call. In fact, when he leaves his eighth and final call, uh, Jim and Diane are both in the room, just screening the calls. And they actually have a back and forth. She's like, if I pick it up, we'll only get back together. And he's just like, you know, whatever about it. Now, then we get to the boombox scene. And if you're a regular view of, viewer of the VH1 pop culture recap shows, like I Love the 80s, Countdowns, and these sorts of things, you know that this scene has its fair share of... Uh, well, it's rife for soccer jokes. Because he's standing, or at least what they, they like to make it out to be, is that he's standing below her window playing her so- their song. But here's the thing first, that's a cheap joke to me because it's so obvious and I see people make that joke and I expect them to try and light a fart afterwards or something, you know what I mean? But then again, these are like C and D-less comedians what have you. Not that I could ever aspire to be on an Isle of the 80s show. Second, it's more complex than that. Diane never sees him during this entire sequence as far as you know. She's in her bedroom. She's obviously upset. She can't think straight. She's just kind of laying down or whatever. And the music is... It's coming from a distance. And she kind of hears it. And she turns over and she looks... But she's not. it's not like she looks out the window and sees Lloyd. Um, and Lloyd's not... Lloyd's not standing on her front lawn. He's obviously, if you look around the background, there's picnic tables and garbage cans. He's standing in a park. Now, I don't know what the proximity to her house, that park, is. It might be across the street. But it also might be a little bit of ways down the block. But he can blast the boombox loud enough. And he hoists it over his head. Like, this needs to go a distance. And he wants her to hear. Plus... 
it's not like it's a random song. If you go back to the scene where they have sex in the back of his car, it's what's playing. And it's not just when they have the sex. It's at that moment, he's this bundle of nervous energy to the point where he's trembling. And Diane calms him down. It's part of a, a moment, a very intimate moment. And she says, you know, listen to the song. This is a really good song. And, and, and it, it calms him down and what have you. And when they break up, she goes into this something. We shared something that was very special between two people. Again, she's just really condescending in the breakup. And he turns around and says, you must think of a dick. You share with a dick. And and it just makes the breakup harsh. Because they do. They She breaks up very with him very close to after they sleep together. And, and right after he tells her he loves her. And the song winds up embodying all of that. He wants to remind her of it. So he blasts it at a distance that will... Well, not scare her so much as haunt her. But in a way that hopefully she'll remember. And the look on his face, it's not anger, it's not sadness. It's quiet determination. He's like saying, I know you feel the same way I do. Why won't you admit that? In the wrong hands, this is creepy. But this isn't in the wrong hands, trust me. It's not. When I get back, um, I'll take a look at a couple of pieces that explore the movie in depth and then eventually I'll go on to the soundtrack. Hey kids comics. Hey Michael. Yeah. We need to do a new promo. A new one. A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do, we still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at two truefreaks.libson.com. Hey kids comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to two truefreaks.libson.com. Still every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? So in the past few episodes, I've mentioned a couple of books on popular culture, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs by Chuck Klosterman and Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies by Jonathan Bernstein. I wanted to touch on what both of those books have to say about Say Anything, uh, because both writers make interesting points and it's kind of fun to see what they have to say. Klosterman doesn't so much review Say Anything as he uses it as a springboard to voice his frustration about how movies like Say Anything create a fake love that too many people strangely aspire to or emulate in some way or another. Over the course of his essay, titled This Is Emo, which is the very first essay in, in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puss, he makes mention of several other movies as well as television shows or bands, but what, strikes, what sticks out is the beginning. No woman will ever satisfy me. I know that now, and I would never try to deny it, but this is actually okay, because I will never satisfy a woman either. Should I be writing such thoughts? Perhaps not. Perhaps it's a bad idea. 
I can definitely foresee a scenario where that first paragraph should, could come back to haunt me, especially if I somehow become marginally famous. And he goes on a little bit, and he's, um, what have you, he says that, uh, basically he'll, you know, say years from now he'll be interviewed, and he said, oh, it's just kind of kidding, and, you know, what have you, he says, but I, I do believe it, it's the truth now, and it will be in the future, it's not, a, while I'm exactly, not exactly had about the truth, it doesn't make me sad either, I know it's not my fault. It's no one's not fault, really, or maybe it's everyone's fault. It should be everyone's fault, because it's everyone's problem. Well, not everyone. Not boring people, not the profoundly retarded. But whenever I meet dynamic, non-retarded Americans, I notice that they all seem to share a single unifying characteristic. The inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship they perceive to be a normal part of living. And someone needs to take the fall for this. So instead of blaming... no one for this, which is kind of cowardly, or blaming everyone, which is kind of meaningless, I'm going to blame John Cusack. I once loved a girl who almost loved me, but not as much as she loved John Cusack. Under certain circumstances, this would have been fine. Cusack is a relatively good-looking, he seems like a pretty cool guy, he likes The Clash and The Who at least, and he undoubtedly has millions of bones in the bank. If Cusack and I were competing for the same woman, I could easily accept losing. However, I don't really feel like John and I were competing for the girl I'm referring to inasmuch as her relationship to Cusack was confined to watching him as a two-dimensional projection, pretending to be characters who don't actually exist. Now, there was a time I would, when I would have thought that detachment would give me a huge advantage over Johnny C, inasmuch as my relationship with this woman included things like, quote-unquote, talking on the phone and, quote-unquote, nuzzling under umbrellas and, quote, eating pancakes. However, I have come to realize that I perceive this competition completely backward. It was definitely an unfair battle, but not in my favor. It was unfair in Cusick's favor. I never had a chance. It appears that countless women born between the years of 1965 and 1978 are in love with John Cusack. I cannot fathom how he isn't the number one box office star in America, because every straight girl I know would would sell her soul to share a milkshake with that motherfucker. For upwardly mobile women in their 20s and 30s, John Cusack is the neo-Elvis. But here's what none of those upwardly mobile women seem to realize. They don't love John Cusack. They love Lloyd Dobler. When they see Mr. Cusack, they are still seeing the optimistic, charmingly loquacious teenager he played in Say Anything, a movie that came out more than a decade ago. That's the guy they think when he they think he is. When Cusack played Eddie Thomas in America's Sweethearts or the sensitive hitman in Gross Point Blank, all his female fans knew he was only acting. But they assumed when the camera stopped rolling, he went back to his genuine self, which was someone like Lloyd Dobler, which was in fact someone who is Lloyd Dobler and who continues to have a storybook romance with Diane Court or Ione Skye, depending on how you look at it. And these upwardly mobile women are not alone. We convince ourselves of things like this, not necessarily about say anything. But about any fictionalized portrayals of romance that happen to hit us right in the right place, at the right time. This is why I'll never be completely satisfied by a woman, and this is why the kind of woman I tend to find attractive will never be satisfied by me. We both measure our relationship against the prospect of fake love. 
And overall, I mean, and he goes on, he goes on to talk about it, he uses other comparisons and what have you, and overall it's a good point, because how many of us are susceptible to wanting to emulate the relationships or personalities that we see on television or in the movies? Or how many times have your friends looked at characters or a couple on television and said, oh, that's so you? Actually, I've used this before in a post. Uh, there were aspects of the Ross-Monica sister-brother relationship in Friends, where I actually do see me and my sister. But really, I can see how he calls out the fact that there are girls and women who cannot seem to separate John Cusack from Lloyd Dobler. And if you want a little more on Lloyd, go back and read that old blog, po- an old blog post of mine as well, Hating Lloyd Dobler, where I look at Cusack's character from the perspective of a high school English teacher. Now, moving on to Bernstein's book, Pretty in Pink, he more or less does summarize the film um, because he is reviewing it. It's in a chapter called True Romance, Love and Affection, Hopeless Devotion and Unrequited Infatuation. He gives a bulk of a chapter to two Cusack movies, one of them being The Sure Thing, which I mentioned. I don't know if I mentioned this this episode or last episode, um, but I have covered in a blog post. And, and then he also talks about Say Anything before moving on to movies like Valley Girl, No Small Fair, Secret Admirer, Can't Buy Me Love, and what have you. I'm not going to read most of the review. He he really really likes Lloyd and Jim, and he and he 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 points out the fact that whereas other movies trashed the parents' house while they were at a party, this movie actually, you know, puts the parents in jail. To be completely honest, um, but I'll, I'll go into that right here. If there was ever a film ahead of its time, it was Hudson Hawk. But right behind it was Say Anything. Wasn't Lloyd Dobler a sweeted nature precursor of the ragamuffins from the same region who soon railed against corporate rock whores? Wasn't his bought, sold, or processed speech a manifesto of befuddled rejection predating the workshy ethic of the yet-to-be-detected slacker species? Wasn't Diane's I am really scared address a blueprint for several million subsequent admissions? And wasn't Corey with her catalog of heartsick defiance an early incarnation of the alt-rock chick? Of course, as ahead of its time as the movie absolutely was in many ways, in its treatment of Jim Corey, it was entirely of its era. In fact, more so. Other teen, 80s teen movies punished errant parents by humbling them or smashing up their prized cars. Say anything, suck his father in the joint. His stated crime was bilking the aged, but his implicit and far more heinous felonies were smothering his daughter with love and interfering in her romance with a cool dude. Definitely harsh. I don't know if I agree with that, to be completely honest with you. Um, I I think that the story is of a person who is so desperate to not hang on to his daughter, but to provide for his daughter. The the story of a father who really will do anything and everything he can to make sure that his daughter is okay. Moving on, Bernstein says, Bernstein gets into his assessment of Diane Court. My only problem with the movie lies with the casting of the heroine. No disrespect to Ione Sky, but in the context of the film, she's supposed to be extraordinary. A character to whom two men of completely disparate natures, willingly and without question, choose to devote their lives. That's a tall order for a mere mortal, and Sky doesn't quite rise to the challenge, rarely exuding qualities more exotic than niceness and concern. Is there anyone who could have done a, the full part justice? Let's see, lovely, brilliant, and gifted, Uma, Uma. A brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess, Uma, Uma. Someone so special she celebrated on two continents, Uma, Uma. Nope, can't think of anyone. I draw a further blank by trying to think of 
Anyone who could have embodied Lloyd Dobler as unforgettably as John Cusack. Lloyd's character traits, cheerful, devoted, undirected, sensitive kickboxing, couldn't the hands of another actor curdle into a scary, over-emoting stalker. Cusack makes him one of a kind, a guy with a heart of gold, but a guy you don't feel like punching. Trying to salve some of Jim Court's heartache just over his daughter's letter, letter to him full of pain, Lloyd says, just knowing that a version like that exists, knowing that for a moment she felt and wrote, I still can't help loving you, that's got to be good, a good thing, right? For all that the movie is supposed to be about an ordinary boy and a special girl, nobody who saw Say Anything had any doubt that it was the story of an extraordinary guy. Um, okay, I, I, he's pretty dead on about uh, about Lloyd. You know, he, nobody can play that role but Cusack. But, and I get what he's saying here and there are moments where Ione Sky could be a little weak. After all, she, I mean, first of all, she has this annoying t- tendency to talk like she's got her mouth full or something. But his implication that Uma Thurman, if you didn't get the hint there, might have been a better Diane Court isn't really accurate. And I know I'm arguing with a book written 15 years ago by or 16 years ago by somebody I know I'll never meet. But let me state my case because I can do that in two words, and that is Beautiful Girls. Beautiful Girls is a high school reunion ensemble comedy from 1996 that was directed by Ted Demi. In it, Timothy Hutton plays a guy who returns from his, to his hometown and hangs out with his friends. Uma Thurman has a very small part in the movie, playing the cousin of one of the main characters who's Hutton's, who, who Hutton's character does find attractive, but it's apparently that it becomes apparent that she is way out of his league. Now, I have a whole point about her character as it's being the ultimate proof as to why Hutton and the then 13-year-old Natalie Porton are a complete mismatch, aside from the fact that she's 13. But I, I intend to do an episode or, or a post on Beautiful Girls at some point, and I'm, right now I'm just going to point out how unbelievably hot Uma Thurman is in this role. You, mean, you watch her in this film, which is about a good five, six years, six or seven years after Say Anything came out, um, she embodies a sexy, confident woman, pretty much, but uh, confident woman. And I know it's, it's seven years after the movie came out, but kind of go back to like Johnny B. Good and some of her other stuff. She kind of always has. She's always had that sultry look to her. And Diane Court is not sultry. She's not sexy. She's not confident. She's a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess. Yes, but. <laughs> She's incredibly insecure, mainly due to the fact that she's socially inept. From the moment we first see her up to the point where she finally stands up and lays into her father, Diane's unsure of herself and seems to need some sort of validation from other people in her life, in this case, uh, the men. Seeing how much her trust has been betrayed by Jim's swindling finally draws that confidence out of her in a way. Um, And her relationship with Lloyd does as well, but... Really, as much as Bernstein wants to say this movie is about Lloyd, it's really about Diane. And Uma Thurman might be a great actress. Uh, in fact, I've seen her in a lot of things, and she is good. But she's she is not the type to play insecure characters. Ione Skye is. She plays Diane with her slouched shoulders and her frumpy clothing, with a sense of insecurity and unsuredness, but with that potential to be cool as her newfound boyfriend, with the potential to be something more than 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 who she is. You know, um, to be kind of the person they know of, not just know. And that's why I love her in the movie. So there you go. 
Now, onto the soundtrack. I won't take too long with this. Um, I did mention it last week, uh, or last episode, sorry, on the Columbia House 13 episode. Uh, I'm going to read the... I know that I'm not really going to read... You don't want me reading Wikipedia pages and stuff, but I will say that the all-music summary of the Say Anything soundtrack, which is an album I mentioned, like I said, on Columbia House 13, really does work well here, so I'm going to read it. Outside of the accompanying LPs for John Hughes' movies like Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club, no other soundtrack ca- captures the zeitgeist of 80s teen films quite like Say Anything. Through the fil- Though the film itself was only a modest box office draw during its initial theatrical run, it earned a major cult following on home video, and its soundtrack found an audience at well- as well. It launched Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes as one of the generation's pet favorite love songs. It was impossible to attend a wedding reception during the 90s without hearing it. It brought the Red Hot Chili Peppers closer to mainstream stardom with Taste the Pain, and finally handed the replacements at least a sliver of mainstream recognition with Within Your Reach. Both the movie and its soundtrack were much smarter than the standard teen fair of the era. Maybe that's why they are both still fondly remembered today. I mean, this is a soundtrack that provides a nice bridge between the 80s and 90s, and has to feel something, well, cool, to be honest. Although, I think I'm the only person I know who had the soundtrack. I don't know, it made me feel cool having it, so there you go. The songs are as follows, uh, and I want to don't want to go in-depth on each of them because that would take much too much time, but I want to mention them at least a little because while there are a couple of songs that are a bit meh, you pretty much listen to this album the entire way through. Track one is All for Love by Nancy Wilson. Nancy Wilson, if you don't know, is the red-headed guitar player from the band Heart, and she also happens to be the wife of director Cameron Crowe. She uh, scores the movie as well, uh, providing some of the blues lines and, and things that you hear. Uh, uh, she also scores almost famous for him, and I want to say Jerry Maguire. Uh, Paul Westerberg does the music for singles. This song, All for Love, is one of the best 80s songs by heart that isn't actually a heart song. Uh, there are bits of it that sound very, very 80s, I will say, but considering that she and her sister would were right between singing Alone and All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, uh, the former of which is a great song, the latter of which is... Uh, I'll take what I can get at this point. Really, it's a good one. It plays during the scene where Lloyd's driving Diane home from the party, and they finally have a moment at, alone after dropping the drunk guy off. And then it plays over the end credits in its entirety. Then we have Cult of Personality by Living Color, and it's a live version of the Cult of, Persona- of, Cult of Personality. Uh... It's a killer live version of the song, too. It, it makes a quick appearance as background music from the party, and even if it's not really noticeable in the film, it's so I'm so g- glad it's on the soundtrack because it's just that good. Uh, there's a lot of power behind Vernon Reed's guitars and Corey Glover's voice that you kind of hear in the... Uh, in the studio version, but that really, really comes out in the live version. Track three is One Big Rush by Joe Satriani. <laughs> Joe Satriani is one of those guys like Steve Vai or, or what have you, who, who just kind of belongs to the 80s and, and never really... Like, never really... I guess in, in many cases you would say not didn't get the recognition that he really deserved. Uh, it's the instrumental piece that Lloyd practices his kickboxing to. It's a decent piece by Satriani. Satriani's a good guitarist. 
I want to say he had a song in the late 80s, early 90s called Summer Song that, that got a lot of play, especially like in commercials and what have you. But this particular track, as good as it is, is a little bit dated as well. Another dated track uh, is track number four, You Want It by Cheap Trick. And that's because this band... I mean, I know they had like a they had like a little bit of a comeback in eighty seven, eighty eight with a cover of "Don't Be Cruel," the Flame, which was a huge hit that they can't that they actually can't stand. But and this isn't a bad song, but it's not "I Want You to Want Me," and it's not "Surrender," and it's not "Dream Police." This also shows up during Valera's party. It's tends to be one I usually skip when listening to the CD, especially when the next track is the Chili Peppers track. It's Taste the Pain. It's a great Chili Peppers song that's used in the opening scenes of the movie to very cool effect. Um, after uh, Lloyd and Diane, they're kind of both driving to graduation, uh, it's it's playing through Lloyd's car stereo, even though it's playing over the, the scenes of the movie, and at one point, Lloyd's stereo starts to eat the tape. So he takes... A matchbook and places it kind of wedges it into the tape deck between the tape and the tape deck, and it gets the thing going right away. And 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 being someone who had a crappy car when he was in in college, you, I what I used to do have to do is uh, the, the, the one of the speakers would go out, so I would have to eject the tape and put it back in so that I could get the tape playing again. I could appreciate that. It's kind of a little nice little detail in the movie because you know it's just it's one of those things you notice you know after a while. After Taste the Pain, we have In Your Eyes, uh, which I really don't need to say more about. It's it's that well-known. It's That scene is that well-known um, to anybody who had a pulse in the 80s or the 90s. Track 7 is Stripped by Depeche Mode. This is a live version of the song. It's in the movie during the party. Specifically, you can hear it in the background where Corey finally says goodbye to Joe. Uh, I'm not the hugest Depeche Mode fan, uh, but I've always loved this song because of this live version. There's a great energy to it, uh, and that's an energy with a live show that you really can't catch on a record very often. Some live albums are just not that great. This just really does it very well. Number eight is Skankin' to the Beat by Fishbone. (laughs) Speaking of energy, this is a high-energy ska piece that makes its way into the party as well. In fact, I think half of the songs in the soundtrack are actually used in the the party scene, but come on, this is a big kegger, a graduation party. And what I like, too, is that there is a scene, there is a little shot, and it's just all of two seconds, and I think it's actually Cameron Crowe's hand, the hand of somebody changing the tapes and tape decks. So it's a because it's a party and pe- there's music and people are putting CDs in and out of of uh, of you know at least when I was in the '90s CDs in and out of players and tapes in and out of players and blasting the stereo and they want to hear this and they want to hear that and so again little little details about the movie that kind of when you when you do notice them make them even worth uh, even more worth watching. I never got into Fishbone that much to be honest. Uh, I think besides this. I have like one other song that's on the last Action Hero soundtrack, and that one's not that good. Um, but I appreciate that Crow put this band on the soundtrack, uh, and not you know Tiffany or whatever the hell was was big in 1989. Uh, last two songs in the album. First, we have "Within Your Reach" by The Replacement. 
And the story about this song, because the song's from about 82 or 83, and the story goes that when the Mats were putting together Hootenanny, which is the, this is the album that's found on, Paul Westerberg recorded this on his own with a drum machine, and he kind of snuck it on the album, because it's way different than most of uh, what the replacements have been recording at the time. And it's a great, great song. Uh, it's the first Matt song I ever heard and wound up being inter- an introduction to one of my favorite bands, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm definitely grateful to the soundtrack for that because uh, from the soundtrack, I, I sought out uh, some of their other albums. I think I started with Stink, believe it or not, and then wound up with a Greatest Hits compilation. And from there... I want to say it was like, please to meet me, let it be, Tim, sorry I'm off, forgot to take out the trash, Hootenanny, uh, then the other two, which were, oh, the last ones all shook down, and Don't Tell a Soul, I think um, they might have been in that order, um, I have listened to them all in that order, if you actually want to listen to an interesting kind of evol- evolution of a band, and its sound, um, start with Sorry Ma Forgot Today at the Trash and go all the way to All Shook Down. It's it's really, really fascinating, especially because it takes place within the span of a decade or so, because I think they broke up in like 91, 92, so it's pretty much the 80s. Uh, also, if you're interested in that band, read Michael Azared's Our Band Could Be Your Life. The chapter on the replacements is really, really good. Anyway, uh, it's in the movie, by the way, uh, at the very end, when when Lloyd's walking out of his apartment on his way to the airport to head to England with Diane. The final track in the album, well, the final song in the album, <laughs> is by Fry High. It's called Keeping the Dream Alive. Uh, it's used in the background of the song when, and Diane, when Diane's at home alone. She's like humming along to it. She's writing out checks or something. Before her dad comes home, he's got her ticket to England. It's a synth-heavy song that wouldn't be out of place actually on some of today's alt-rock stations, to be honest with you, even if it was a little power battle Um And it's really obscure. I don't think anybody uh, beyond people who have this album know who Fry High are, and I per- certainly don't. I like it, though. Uh, There's an 11th track, too, and the 11th track is this. 113 Golf, take five. Mark. Chill, man. Come on. He's wigging every day. Wigging every night. Lloyd, Lloyd, I'm null and void. To listen to the truth, trying to avoid Lloyd Pinkstuff, catching what you took another hole. Waste night time, spending night, don't go, don't go. Instead of right. Wingies and pogos, that's what I want, my girl. Okay, later. 113. If you don't know that scene, that's uh, right after he hangs out with Joe and his friends, and they're like. Uh, talking about how, you know, you don't need to... J- Diane Court's a stone, show pony. You need a stallion, my friend. You w- walk with us and you walk tall. And he's like... And and he flips out and, like, gets pissed off. He's like, you know, um, she won't even talk to me. She won't even look at me. And he chucks a beer bottle, like, you know, into a wall. And it, it shatters. And they're like, chill, man. And then that, that's what you get. Now, before I... Before I uh, before I finish up, what's also so great about the soundtrack are the liner notes. Uh Joey Carnuba, who is a DJ for KSTE-FM in Seattle, writes an essay that actually starts um, 
on page four of the book and goes for about four pages. Uh, there's a, the centerfold of the book is a picture of each of the people who were the uh, different bands on the soundtrack. But uh, but he he talks about the movie. He ta- and then he goes through like each song. And, and I'm not gonna sit here and read. <laughs> All of this, because in all honesty, it's long and it would take forever. Um, but if you are interested in it, you can probably go to get and get it on Amazon. The notes, the liner notes, which is like you know, this is what uh, this is what this is. This it's very stream of consciousness. It's through each of these each of these songs are about. It's almost like a mixtape note. Well, let me read the the last page or so of it because because this really um, this really kind of epitomizes what how good these notes are and and how much fun really the soundtrack is and 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 kind of what the the movie's impact on people could be truthfully i feel most movies could be a lot better it's funny about bad movies you get that first sinking feeling after about eight minutes didn't anyone take them aside and tell them while they were making it next is maybe it's so bad it's good which sometimes happens but usually you sit there and think that flick might have its moments but there's really nothing so compelling that it couldn't just chill for four months or so call these kinds of movies rtv which stands for rent the video i have been able to boil down why good movies are good number one they show you things you wouldn't see on tv number two they have classic lines or parts number three they show your places you can't afford to visit in real life. Number four, Eddie Murphy. Number five, they made you forget things that were bothering you. Say Anything has all but one of the above, which I feel is pretty good. It's a good movie, and I saw it on a good night. I laughed, had some surprises, whatever, but the deal is it pissed me off. Why? Because I've had this Vicky thing hanging in the air ever since. This calls back to the beginning of the essay where he's talking about this ex-girlfriend named Vicky with an I. I called her sister last night and her sister said that she asked me about Christmas, which is typical. As Elvis says in Girls, 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 I must have gotten the wrong fortune cookie. She takes all my records. She sends but sends her bests. I don't know. I told her to tell Vicky to listen to my show tonight and I'll play her a set that will blur her away. And if she doesn't call then, I'll just sit outside of her house with a beatbox. Probably wouldn't do that, but who knows. I don't usually like love stories either, but here I am letting one get to me. As the, glace, as the great Lester Banks once wrote, from here on out I'm only interested in true feeling. I'm listening to this record too loud, and the neighbors just started pounding on the wall, so I'll leave it at that. One last thing. Three days have gone by since I wrote that last line. Okay, here's what happened. She checked out my show. She called Bing Bang Boom, and we're seeing each other this Friday night. Vicky with an I. It's a date. It's a scam, whatever. The movie rocked, the music rocked. Hope you guys can use some of this. Um, and and so, it, I don't know. It, it's one of those. It's one of those albums that has great liner notes. And and I don't, you know, I, I'm the type of dork who reads the liner notes and CDs when I used to have CDs or buy CDs. And uh, there are a few. There are a few here and there that that I will always love, love to read through. Uh, and that's one of them. And that's it, really, for Say Anything as well as the soundtrack. I- I'd like to thank you f- again for listening to me basically gush and stumble my way through about an hour and a half or so of a movie that uh, I love. And I invite you to come back in two weeks for another episode. Uh, that time I'll be taking out some look 
at something of mine, believe it or not. Uh, and hopefully it will go over well. I, I have, uh, as of this recording, have a little bit of more notes to write and, and things to do and some to, things to record. But until then, uh, don't forget to send me some feedback, some emails. Check out the site for some show notes and videos, uh, what have you. And thank you very much for listening. In my fantasy, I remember their faces, the hopes we had were much too high, way out of reach, but we have to try, the game will never be over, because we're keeping the dream alive. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at Pop Culture Affidavit. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Yeah.